The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, August 19th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Did you know that we have two different measurements for feet in the U.S.? Like the 12 inches on a ruler. There are two different versions, but not for long. Some good news regarding the prospects for a COVID-19 vaccine, a new Girl Scout cookie, and why the cookies seem to vary from state to state, and a Swiss town that got a very delicious surprise snowstorm last week. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. All right, so we all know that the imperial system is a mess compared to the metric. And technically, here in the U.S., we use U.S. customary units, which are similar to the British imperial system in that both have things like yards, pounds, and gallons. But at least historically, the size of each of those measurements was slightly different in the two systems. In the 1960s, the U.K. and the U.S. agreed to make their yards and pounds the same by scaling them against the meter and the kilogram. This change didn't make too much of a difference for the UK, but the US customary units varied enough that we were left with two distinct systems for linear measurement within the US customary unit system, the international system and the US surveyor's system. Now, practically, this hasn't meant much for most people. I mean, you might not even be aware that there are technically two different measurements for feet, like a foot, you know, 12 inches. We have two different standards here in the U.S., and they differ by about one hundredth of a foot, or 0.12672 inches per mile. So it's not all that much, but over long lengths, it does add up. Over a million feet, there would be a difference of two whole feet, And one group of people who really have to be concerned with this? Surveyors. Quoting the New York Times, Most states mandate the use of the old U.S. survey foot for their state coordinate systems, which allows surveyors to take into account Earth's curvature in their measurements. A few states mandate the use of the new international foot. A handful do not specify which of the two feet should be used. Arizona, for example, is an international foot state, but when employees with the Federal Aviation Administration or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers or the Park Service measure there, they use the U.S. survey foot. Other problems crop up when surveyors measure from one state to the next, unaware that the two states use different feet. In some cases, large projects employ international surveying firms whose employees are unaware that America has two feet. Some surveying computer software will not recognize the existence of two feet, and even hand calculators usually default to the international foot. End quote. Michael L. Dennis, an Arizona-based surveyor and geodesist with the National Geodetic Survey, has had to put up with this confusion and errors for years. Recently, he decided to suggest retiring the U.S. survey foot and going to a one-foot-only system. He and his colleagues at the National Geodetic Survey were already working on recalibrating the coordinates of the National Spatial Reference System, so the timing seemed right to make a small but radical proposal. 
Despite a little bit of grumbling about patriotism and history, it was ultimately well-received, and as of January 1st, 2023, the U.S. survey foot will be no longer. According to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, we will only have the international foot. Or really, since there will only be one, just the foot. This story was a quick link on cocky.org today that I wanted to dive into a little bit deeper, and it is good news for the prospect of an effective COVID-19 vaccine. The TLDR is that scientists studying the immune response to SARS-CoV-2 have been unsurprised by their findings. It's all been fairly predictable, which bodes well for how effective and long-lasting a vaccine might be. Quoting Nature.com, Long-term immunity can vary by type and also by degree of response. Vaccine developers often hope to elicit what's known as sterilizing immunity, a response typically mediated by antibodies that can rapidly prevent a returning virus from gaining ground in the body. But not all vaccines or infections elicit the neutralizing antibodies required for sterilizing immunity. HIV, for example, rarely induces neutralizing antibodies, a fact that has complicated efforts to develop vaccines against it. The signs so far for SARS-CoV-2 are encouraging. Several teams of researchers were quick to isolate neutralizing antibodies from people infected with the virus. Most could mount such an antibody response within days of testing positive, and several vaccine candidates against SARS-CoV-2 provoke a strong antibody response, a positive sign that the vaccines might generate immunity, end quote. But one caveat is that antibody responses are usually the highest in people with the severest and most long-term infections. And since most people with COVID-19 had or have more mild cases, they may be producing smaller amounts of the neutralizing antibody. Quoting again, This pattern is often seen with viruses. The longer, more severe infections are more likely to produce strong, durable responses. This is one reason that common cold coronaviruses sometimes don't yield long-lasting immunity, says Shane Crotty, a virologist at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology in California, end quote. As for how long immunity may last, you probably heard a lot of the headlines about it only lasting for about three months. This was because one study showed that the number of antibodies peaked a few days after the onset of symptoms and were barely there after three months. But immunologists say the media response kind of blew it out of proportion in a negative way. Quote, The data showed a perfectly normal response to a viral infection, says Luis Barrero at the University of Chicago in Illinois, who studies the evolution of immune responses to pathogens. When a virus attacks, it spurs the proliferation of B cells that produce antibodies capable of recognizing pieces of the virus. But once the infection is gone, antibody levels typically wane. There's a lot of fear out there, says Miles Carroll, an infectious disease specialist with Public Health England in Porton Down, UK. But I think on the whole that it's a fairly robust immune response, end quote. And even if the antibodies do dwindle to super low levels, there are other possibilities. One is memory B cells, which stay in the bone marrow and then become antibody-producing plasma cells when the virus returns. Now, whether this is applicable for COVID-19 is still being studied. The other possibility is T-cells, recognizing and destroying virally infected cells. Studies so far show strong T-cell responses in people recovering from COVID-19. And an interesting finding along those lines, quote, One team recently reported that some of these T-cells react not only to SARS-CoV-2, but also to some common cold coronaviruses. 
The results suggest that there may be some lasting cross-immunity between these cold coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2, leading to speculation that this could be responsible, in part, for the wild differences in severity of COVID-19 symptoms between individuals, end quote. Overall, a lot remains to be seen, but the straightforward, unsurprising results, at least when it comes to studying immune response so far, are definitely a cause for cautious optimism. And even if a sterilization vaccine can't be achieved, one which would lessen the symptoms and drastically reduce mortality would be a game-changer. And now for some very good news, there's a new Girl Scout cookie coming out. It's called the Toast Yay, so you can't not be excited by something with yay in the title. The Toast Yay, a French toast-inspired cookie, it's a bread-shaped cookie, lightly cinnamon-flavored, with the Girl Scout logo on one side and dipped in icing on the other. It won't be debuting until cookie season officially kicks off in January, however, and depending where you live, cookie season might be at a slightly different time. Girl Scout cookies, while universally beloved, it turns out carry quite a bit of mystery to them, especially when it comes to timing and just what to expect in the cookies. If you live in the United States and you've ever moved across state lines or, well, these days I suppose even just encountered people from different regions on the internet, you may have discovered that Girl Scout cookies aren't called the same things everywhere. Sure, Thin Mints are always Thin Mints, but in some places a Caramel Delight is a Samoa and a Peanut Butter Patty is a Tagalong. Many of the cookies don't just have different names, they also have slightly different taste and appearances too. And that's because the Girl Scouts of the USA actually have two different suppliers of Girl Scout cookies, ABC Bakers and Little Brown Bakers. The thing is, though, it's not like ABC supplies the cookies for all of the West and Little Brown for all of the East. It's totally mixed up. Several states even have a different supplier depending where in the state you are. And this is because it varies by Girl Scout Council, not any definitive supply lines. For example, I grew up in Texas eating caramel delights and shortbread cookies, and then I moved to New York and everyone was talking to me about Samoas and trefoils. At first, I thought that the names had changed since I was a kid, but when I discovered the two different suppliers thing, I naturally assumed it was an East versus West or North versus South regional kind of divide. But it turns out the divide was much closer to home than I ever realized. I grew up in a town called Grapevine, Texas, and if you have ever had a layover at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, you've been to my hometown. Because that's just it, my hometown is right in between Dallas and Fort Worth, so it plays host to the airport, along with three other cities that are neither Dallas nor Fort Worth. Well, I found this awesome map that the LA Times put together several years ago, and which used to be interactive but has sadly broken down. And I discovered that the region surrounding Fort Worth, Texas, is served by ABC Bakers, while a little pocket around Dallas is served by Little Brown. And my hometown apparently just made the cut for ABC. If I had ever gone one town over to buy from a different troop, I would have been eating completely different cookies. Because like I said, it's not just the names. A few of the cookies really are quite different. ABC Thin Mints are more decorative, mintier, and crunchier, while Little Brown ones have a lot more chocolate and a plain, non-decorative coating. Peanut Butter Sandwiches from ABC are more crisp than crunchy, while their equivalent dosy doughs from Little Brown are crunchier and more buttery. Buttery, richer tastes and darker chocolate seems to be a theme from Little Brown. 
Now, the differences get really stark on some of the newer cookies, though. ABC's s'mores cookies are actually coated in chocolate, while Little Brown's s'mores are a sandwich cookie. And meanwhile, lemonades from ABC are a big shortbread cookie, while the Little Brown ones are this little sugar-coated half-moon. As for the new Toast Yays cookie that was announced today, so far, Toast Yays are only being released by ABC Bakers. Now, I don't think this means they won't ever be coming out from Little Brown. Maybe they just can't release the info on that yet. But right now, it is select markets only. The Girl Scouts do seem to favor ABC. When you look at their cookie lineup and nutritional info on their official website, it all links solely to the ABC version of each cookie. But the good news is that even if the Toast Yays don't get a Little Brown equivalent and therefore aren't on offer from your local troop, the Girl Scouts have opened up cookie ordering to online orders. So presumably you'd be able to order some online no matter where you live. And as of this past cookie season, you are also able to order cookies to donate to first responders, volunteers, and local causes. If I told you that a town was being pelted with chocolate snow in 2020, your jaded and skeptical mind would probably think that I meant a more nightmarish, gross version of yellow snow. But no, 2020 has finally done something right. The Swiss town of Olten woke up Friday morning to winds carrying a fine dust of chocolate all over town. The chocolate came from nibs, or fragments, of crushed cocoa beans that had been released through a, quote, minor defect in the cooling ventilation at the Lind and Sprungli Chocolate Company. The factory in Olten, which is between Zurich and Basel, says the ventilation system has now been repaired and they've offered to pay for any cleaning services to cars that became dusted with the chocolate powder. Australian reporter Jason Ohm on Twitter said, quote, 2020 is just plain weird, but on the upside, it's snowing chocolate and not frogs, end quote. And I gotta agree, I know it's gonna be a little messy to clean up, but this is something straight out of a fairy tale. That is all for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am going to go dig some leftover Girl Scout cookies out of the back of my freezer. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.